Are you going to have still in for me when I'm gone? Since you've been Gone. Oh, okay, yep, there it is. Although I think I'm going to Africa again. Um, Yep, we'll get started. <laughs> They're back there going, Amy, when are you going to start? I'm having too much fun talking to people. Well, good morning, and welcome to Pivotal Circumstances, the study of Esther and Ruth. Uh, I'm, uh, I say this all the time, I'm really excited to teach. One of my friends, Elisa Vilter, said, Amy, when are you not excited to teach? But uh, I am, and I'm excited to see... Um, how God's going to work this semester and how he's going to shape us through his word um, this semester. And, and I thank you so much for being on this journey with me uh, as I do this. I, I, I do have to tell you that as I wrote Esther, uh, and Ruth too, but particularly Esther last summer, it had the greatest impact on me of any study I've ever written. I've been doing this for 10 years, and I, I hope that comes through in the, it doesn't always work that way, that it comes through in the, in the teaching of it and uh, in the lessons. But uh, I, my prayer is that it will have a similar impact on you because I, I walked into it thinking, yeah, Esther, I didn't want to teach it. Okay, that's the honest truth. The honest truth is what my heart was set on was Philippians until Pastor Steve said, I'm teaching Philippians starting in January. And I went, great, I'm so happy for you. Uh, I, didn't even, I didn't even start studying Philippians. I was so excited to teach Philippians. And so, you know, God led me to Esther and Ruth. And, you know, I, I, it reminded me once again, I love stories. That's all I do is tell stories, you know. And, and I, thought, I walked into it thinking, I know this story. I've heard this story all my life. I, I did not know this story. I really didn't know this story. And so I hope and pray that uh, the wonder of these stories of these two women uh, will be apparent to you as well. With my apologies to everyone who has known me for years and is like, yada, 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 husband, three kids, dog, whatever, I will take this time to introduce myself to you a little bit. My name is Amy, uh, and I have been married for 25 years to this handsome gentleman here. I know you can't tell that he's handsome in this picture, but let me tell you, isn't any picture from behind cute? Seriously. Well, not my behind. But... When you have a very tall, thin gentleman walking with his two-year-old niece holding her hand, it is adorable. And he is walking up. By the way, all of these pictures were taken over Thanksgiving 
when my extended family was together for Thanksgiving in Kansas City. And the reason I used pictures from this is that my family, as you will find out if you don't already know, is extraordinarily important to me. My parents, who have both passed away now, I could not exaggerate the impact they have had on my life. And you will learn that as we go through the study because I can't help but speaking of them. I am one of four girls who understands that my identity is in Christ. I am a wife. I am a mother. But I have to tell you, a lot of who I am is the second of four girls. And those three women are my best friends. You'll see them in a minute. So all of these pictures are extended family pictures. So that's my husband, Jeff. Uh, We've been married for 25 years, 25 and a half now. And that is our niece, Lulu, Lucy, she's two, and she's Ethiopian. Uh, And this is my son, Josh, our son, Josh, and Lulu again, because she's just so stinking cute, Uh, isn't she? Uh, And this was No Shave November, November. that's great. Um, And Josh is 21 years old. Uh, He is currently taking uh, five classes at Metro. Thank you, Jesus. And... um, and with hopes of transferring to Lincoln uh, in the fall. So uh, he's in a better place now than he was in, uh, in, the, in the fall last year when I first talked to you. And our, our daughter, Katie, is the blonde there. You probably figured that part out. And she is 16 and she is a sophomore. She's with three of her cousins again. Lucy made it into the picture. Uh, and Lucy's older brother, Jack, and her cousin, Jonathan, with her. She is 16 and a sophomore. I have said many times that whenever I was pregnant with a child, I never said whether I wanted a boy or a girl out loud because I didn't want a child growing up as a boy going, Mom wanted a girl or vice versa. But I have told Katie many times since that fact that if God would have allowed me to special order a child when I was pregnant pregnant with her, I would have asked for a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, left-handed little girl with a sparkling personality. This is my special order child. That's uh, exactly who she is. And then finally, we have our youngest, Lane. He's the one in the glasses with his cousins, Jack and Tate. Um, and Lane is 12. He is still homeschooled, so he's downstairs right now working very hard, as he did yesterday when I had a meeting, and he worked in the morning while I was there. And then uh, Josh told me as soon as the garage door went up for me to come home, he ran upstairs and started working again. Uh, and uh, he may be going to school next year. You'll have to ask me again in the fall. Every time I introduce Lane, I tell you that uh, he is my most unintentionally funny child. And every time I do this part of the first study, I think this can't last. I'm going to have to go back to something when he was three, he's 12. Oh, no, 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 no. It just keeps getting better. As I was cleaning my house for uh, Christmas for family to come over, I found this slip of paper. I don't remember when it was written probably in the last year since I last cleaned my house. Um, uh, I don't know, I don't remember him handing it to me. It was in my bedroom. I don't know if he just left it there for me to find. But this is Lane. I want to remind you, he is 12. He is in the sixth grade. Lane's college care package list. (laughs) He prepares ahead. It's decidedly full of chocolate and peanut butter. He wants Nutella. He wants peanut butter. He wants uh, Butterfingers, Reese's, and beef jerky. (laughs) I guess because he's a boy. Exactly, exactly. What else do you need? That and popcorn. So, yeah. So I'm going to hang on to that, and that'll be his. You know, I'm like, what if you go to Bellevue University? But anyway, uh, I'll just deliver it to his door. But then, 
then, just last week, uh, I had asked Lane to go downstairs and get the clothes out of the dryer and take them up to my room. Now, I will admit that I had forgotten, because this is what I do best, it was a load of whites. But he, he took the things and he, he took them upstairs, he put them on my bed, and then he came downstairs and he announced, when I grow up, I'm going to become president of the United States, and I'm going to pass a law that says no boy should ever have to touch his mother's underwear. <laughs> And he was completely serious, my most unintentionally funny child. And, you know, actually, it wouldn't be a bad law. It's better than most of the laws they pass. This is our dog, Barkley. He is six years old now, hard for me to believe. Uh, he was a birthday present uh, for my 45th birthday and the best birthday present I ever got. He's wonderful. He's a Shih Tzu poodle mix, for those of you who are going, what is that? Um, and then before I talk about me and my qualifications, I need to introduce you to these Three lovely ladies. This is me with my sisters at Thanksgiving. We kept trying to find a place where we could take a picture of the four of us where the body parts we wanted to have hidden would be hidden. <laughs> so eventually we chose uh, the grand piano that had been my mother's that is now in Georgianne's living room. My oldest sister is to the top and to the right of me. That's Carrie. Uh, and then I'm second. Georgianne in the purple, in, in whose home we are. And then our youngest sister, Missy, who is the baby of the family by quite a bit, but she is 41 now. She thought she would be sexy and lift her leg up on the piano. Quite sexy, isn't it? Except for she forgot she's 41 and she couldn't get it down <laughs> from the piano. I have to tell you, when we are together, this picture could be taken many times over. We uh, have so much fun being together. So uh, that is my family. I suppose I shouldn't just leave that up there for you to watch while I'm serious. So we'll put, we'll put scripture up there instead. Uh, every semester I like to tell you my qualifications to teach, and they're important because you might want to write these down because they're really fabulous. Here are my qualifications to teach you God's word. I love God's word, and I love to teach. That's it. There are no letters behind my name. I haven't studied anything special to be here. I have a bachelor's degree in social studies education and physical education from St. Olaf College. So really, truly, honestly, obviously, my only qualifications are I love God's word and I love to teach. And I get so excited to be up here. In fact, if I do get a job, it has to be one that lets me be free Tuesday mornings because uh, I love doing this so much. I want to introduce you to the study a little bit, uh, just the format of the study. Each week you'll have five days' worth of questions. You have seven days to complete them. That's not so bad. Uh, and each lesson should take 15 to 20 minutes a day. Um, if you don't finish your lesson, if you don't start your lesson, if you do part of your lesson, whatever, please come anyway. Uh, nobody's going to shun you. Nobody's going to say, oh, you can't answer questions. Nobody's going to treat you, mistreat you. We've all been there. Uh, my entire family has been kicked out of Bible study fellowship at some point in time. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we've all been there, and uh, uh, so please come anyway. I, I believe that if you do the homework and, and then you come to the class and you, and you talk it through with the ladies and you listen to the lecture, you will get the most out of the study. But I believe that just by coming and spending time in your small group and, and in here, you will get something out of it. And so please come anyway. I will say this, because I'm not sure that as in past uh, studies that we've done, that we will read through the entire passage. If you can do nothing else, it would probably be good for you to read through the portion of Esther uh, during the week that we'll be, be studying, uh, because I think that will, that will help you uh, get even more out of it. 
In your study, there are three types of questions. There are questions that are just questions, regular questions. There are some thought-provoker questions, which are questions intended to provoke thought. Um, and they may make you think a little bit. They may, you might not even know what you're supposed to answer. That is fine. That happens to me frequently, and I wrote the question. So uh, it, it do, it's not that, that uh, infrequent for me to go, wow, what was she thinking when she wrote that? Uh, and then I'm not, I can't even remember. See, this is going to be a common theme. I'm not sure if I put any of these questions in this uh, study or not, but sometimes I put in challenge questions. And if it says challenge, that means that you will probably have to look to some sort of outside material to find uh, the question, or the answer to the question. But I don't know for sure. Mostly all you should need is your Bible and a pen and the study. I am a simple gal. And so my, my husband would probably disagree with that. I am a simple gal. And so my approach to teaching God's word is very simple. This is what I want to know, and this is what I pray you know. What does it say? What does it mean? And how can I apply it to my life? I believe that we cannot live what we do not know. And so it is really, truly important for us to know what it says and what it means, because we can't apply it until we know what it says and what it means. And yet... I also believe that God's word was intended to radically transform us completely from the inside out. And, and that is God's word applied, is when we are changed as women. And it is my deepest, most sincere prayer that that would happen to us uh, this semester as we go through God's word. So that's me. That's the study. Let's talk a little bit about, um, about Esther. Uh, and Esther, there's a little bit of a problem with Esther, a little bit of a conundrum with Esther, because it is atypical of Old Testament writings. It's not like others. In fact, Karen Jobes, who you'll also be hearing out about a lot in this study, uh, her commentary was by far the best I have ever read, and I've read a lot of commentaries, and I enjoy reading commentaries. I know that's weird. Um, and in fact, so much so that when I found out she was at Wheaton, I called my nephew and said, did you know Karen Jobs teaches at Wheaton? Karen Jobs, Karen Jobs, she's wonderful. And, uh, and he t tells me I have a scholar crush on her. But anyway, uh, for Christmas, my nephew Willie, who's a senior at Wheaton, uh, bought me her latest book on Hebrews and the General Epistles, took it to her office, though he had never met her, walked in and said, my aunt has a scholar crush on you. <laughs> Would you please sign this for her? Uh, and so I now have uh, a book signed by Karen Jobes, and I'm, I'm excited about it. So you will be hearing uh, a great deal from Dr. Jobes this uh, semester. And, and she says that other than the fact that this story of Esther is about the Jewish people, there's really nothing Jewish about it, at least in the religious sense. God's name is never mentioned. Not any of the names for God are mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible that that's true of. Jerusalem is not mentioned. Um, the temple is not mentioned, partly because they're not living there. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. There's no mention of prayer. Nobody prays. They fast at one point, but there's, there's no connection to anything religious necessarily. There's no mention of the law. In fact, the people within the book of Esther don't seem to have any care for the law at all, any concern for the law of God at all. And nothing, not even the tiniest thing miraculous, occurs. It's just everyday, ordinary circumstances. Or is it? Hmm. Uh, secondly, 
it's atypical, and, and this is true. They're, they're, these characters are flawed, and of course we all are. And I mean, heavens to Betsy, the Old Testament's full of flawed characters. But these characters are flawed, but not only are they flawed, the writer doesn't give us any hint or any comment as to the morality of the actions they're taking. Is it a good thing? Was it good for Esther to deny her Jewishness, to pretend she was not, to to ignore the dietary laws, and to live in the harem of a pagan king? Was that a good decision? Or was that a bad decision? Were their motives good? Were they bad? Were they trying to do the right thing? Did they not care what the right thing was? We don't know. The writer never tells us. And we're left to make our own inferences about those decisions and motives. And we will as we go through the study. All of which has caused, for many years, caused uh, scholars and preachers uh, and church fathers to ignore Esther. Now, it could have something to do with she was a woman, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, and, and in fact, John Calvin never preached on Esther. It was not in any of his commentaries. And Martin Luther had a downright negative attitude toward the book. In fact, he said he wished that it had never been placed in the canon because, get this, it contained too many heathen unnaturalities. <laughs> so he, he was not in favor of the book at all. But it is part of our canon, both Jewish and Christian. And it's there for a reason. Um, it is div- a divinely inspired story that has much to teach us about God about God's plan for salvation, and about us. And its purpose is the same as the purpose for every Old Testament book. And and Paul tells us in Romans 15 that the purpose of the entire Old Testament is for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And, and, And that is what I found to be so true of Esther, that not only did it teach me tremendous things about God and his relationship with his people. Uh, But it also gave me hope. And so I pray it will do the same thing for you. So because I was a history teacher, I feel the need, and because I'm I'm not, you know, when I talk about some of these things about Persia, about, uh, you know, the the Israelites and and being in Persia and how did that happen, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So this will be review for a lot of you, but I want to make sure you understand where where Esther and Mordecai are as this story begins. So I'm going to begin with Solomon, the son of King David, who was, um, uh, amassed, was king of Israel, amassed a huge fortune, uh, had a great deal of influence and a powerful government, uh, and he also amassed a plethora of foreign wives, but we're not going to get into that. That's a different story for a different day. Shortly after, and he built a temple uh, in Jerusalem. Shortly after King Solomon's death, the uh, northern tribes refused to follow his son, Rehoboam, and I don't know why anyone would name a child that, Uh, and so they revolted. So the southern tribes formed their own kingdom, Judah, uh, and its its capital remained Jerusalem, as it had been for Israel, and the northern tribes formed their own kingdom called Israel, and they made Samaria their capital. So when you hear them talking about, in Israel's history, the divided kingdom, that's what they're talking about. The north was called Israel, and it was ten of the twelve tribes. The south was called Judah, 
And it was primarily the tribe of Judah, but also the tribe of Benjamin, so two of them. Israel, the northern tribe, fell first. Uh, The Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire, conquered, the northern tribe conquered uh, the kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. So in 722 B.C., Israel fell to the Assyrians. Judah did not at that time. But in large part in both cases because of their disobe- the dis- disobedience of their kings and their people, um, Judah also fell to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 B.C. The Jews of Judah then were cured. By the way, the word Jews comes from Judah. And in fact, Mordecai is the first person in the Old Testament to be called a Jew. Um, But uh, the Jews of Judah were carried away into exile into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Not all of them, but nearly all of them were carried away into exile uh, in Babylon. This singular event uh, cannot be overstated the impact that this event had on, Ju- on shaping Judaism, on shaping its history, on shaping its people. In fact, when you look at uh, history, the history of ancient uh, Judaism, of the Jews, it often is divided into pre-exilic, before the exile to Babylon, Babylon and post-exilic periods. It had a, a huge impact on their people. So the Jews have been taken out of their homeland and taken to the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar. And the life in exile, the religious life in particular in exile, was very different from what it had been in Judah. Remember, they had Jerusalem as their capital. And and worship was centered around the temple and around uh, priests and around ritual sacrifice. They had none of that. They were taken into exile. There was no temple. There were no priests. There were no, um, there were no sacrifices. There was no way for them to follow their religion in the way God had commanded them to. So the religious life of the Jews in exile became centered on the study of the Torah, which actually is very much like Judaism today. There's no temple. There are no priests. There is no... There are no animal sacrifices. And, and Judaism is centered on the study of the Torah. Uh, and so um, the people in, in Babylon, the Jews in Babylon, uh, remained there through the Babylonian Empire. However, uh, the prophets foretold, through God foretold through the prophets, that one day God would bring his people back to their homeland. And he did. The Babylonians were defeated by the Persians and their king, the the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, or Cyrus II, released the Jews from captivity and allowed them to return to their homeland. By the way, the story of the fall of the Babylonian Empire uh, can be found both in ancient history books and also in the Old Testament in Daniel 5. It's a very interesting story. It seems that the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, was in a drunken stupor when um, the Persian troops came up through the canals and defeated him without a battle. That was it. He was done. And God had told him it would happen uh, through Daniel. Uh, and so you can, you can actually, it was, I, I love this. How do they know this? 
That occurred on October 12, 539 B.C. So, yeah, I mean, they've got it down to the date. Um, And so God fulfilled his promise uh, when Cyrus the Great said, you can go back. And in fact, use the resources of Persia to rebuild your temple. And so God fulfilled his promise to his people that they would return through a pagan king. God does work in mysterious ways. The Persian Empire lasted for about 200 years, from 539 B.C. to 330 B.C. 539 B.C. to 330 B.C. Uh, Now, when Cyrus the Great said, go ahead, go home, some of the Jews went back and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the wall, and you can find their story in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But most of them stayed in Persia. They liked it there. They'd been assimilated. And so most did not leave uh, and continued establishing their lives there. While those who returned to Jerusalem labored and struggled to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall and reestablish the kingdom, the Jews in Persia lived pretty much as they always had in, in Persia. The story of, of Esther takes place about 50 years after the Jews were allowed to return to their homeland. And it centers on those Jews, and particularly Esther and Mordecai, who stayed in Persia. So the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah are about those who returned. Esther is about those who chose not to return, who chose to stay rather than return to their homeland. It occurs during the reign of this king on the board who actually in Hebrew, his name is pronounced something like Ahasuerwash. That's not what we'll call him. He's also known as Xerxes. That's a lot easier to say. So we'll call uh, King Ahasuerwash King Xerxes instead. Uh, And King Xerxes ruled Persia from uh, 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. If my memory serves, which we all know it does not, I think he was Cyrus's grandson. I could be wrong about that. Cyrus's grandson? I think I'm wrong. Let's just call it that. Um, and Herodotus, uh, an ancient Greek philo- or, excuse me, historian, tells us that Xerxes was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. I don't know how handsome he is. Mean, I don't think that's a really great contest. You know, it's like... Yeah, you're the tallest and you're the most handsome of these guys. Uh, And also he was ruthless and ambitious, but he was a brilliant warrior and a jealous lover. This story takes place in the winter capital of the Persian Empire, which is Susa, is the name of the winter capital. I wrote that on the board for you. So these people who had chosen not to return, the big theological question of their day is, are we still... God's people. Uh, in other words, uh, were those people who chose to, to stay in Persia rather than return to God's promised land, did they still belong to God? Um, was he still their children? Was, were they still children of the covenant? And would God still keep his promises to them? Those questions lie at the heart of the story of Esther. Now, I need to talk a little bit about the authorship and the date of Esther. This should not take long. 
Uh, the book does not claim who wrote it. We don't know. That's the long and the short of it. We do not know who wrote the book of Esther. We don't know when it was written. It was written sometime probably after King Xerxes was no longer in power because, uh, and you'll see this several times where he talks about um, King Xerxes or what was going on as if that was no longer going on. So sometime after King Xerxes, so there's a bit of distance in the writing, sometime after King Xerxes' reign. But there's no way to know how long after. There is some evidence that an argument can be made that it was about or even less than 100 years after the events, which would be pretty close. Um, So the late 5th century B.C. or the early 4th century B.C. But the truth is that the date of authorship and the author are unknown. We just don't know. Other than to say it was somewhere between the 5th century, late 5th century B.C. and 3rd century B.C. Now, there are historical issues. There are some who say that this, this is a, a, not a real story, that this was a, a fabricated story. When I teach in the summers at Royal Family Kids Camp, uh, one of the first things I do before I tell a Bible story is I ask the kids, now, this is a story from the Bible. Does that mean, is it a real story or is it a pretend story? And, of course, they all say, well, some of them go, I have no idea. I've never heard of this Bible. But the ones that know say, it's a real story. And so I need to tell you, this is a real story. Um, it was not fabricated. Uh, and, and the author himself is, and you'll find this out this week, uh, tells us that what he is writing is an actual historical event, that it, it actually took place. He's writing uh, in that way. Uh, and nothing in the book has been proven untrue. There's not one thing you can point to historically um, that you can say, no, this can't be true because look at this. There are a few problematic issues, but they can all be resolved. Let me give you an example, and we'll go through some of these. But some of the names of people are different. In other words, um, Esther tells us that that the original queen, uh, the original wife of King Xerxes, her name was Vashti. Well, Herodotus gives us a different name. What's up with that? And what's up with the different names for King Xerxes? Um, but, But that can be explained, and each of the problematic areas can be explained. Um, For example, the names that were chosen, the name Vashti means beautiful woman. And so it's very possible, and by the way, Ahasuerus, when it's pronounced in Hebrew, sounds something like King Headache. (laughs) Yeah. And, And so the names might very well have been chosen to say something about the people, not necessarily their original names. Does that make it an untrue story? I'm going to date myself. My um, very favorite singer is a guy named Randy Stonehill. Anybody in the room? Anybody. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate it. Uh, he's, a, he's one of the founders of Christian rock and roll. So you youngins that like to listen to Christian rock and roll, you have Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill to thank, thank for it. But anyway, Randy Stonehill, years and years ago, like long before a lot of you in this room were born, uh, wrote a song. It's called Song for Sarah. It's a beautiful, haunting love song. Sarah. Can I love you? Will you open up the door? I know you've heard that misused word a lot of times before. But I think that you need someone who can firmly take your hand and love you in a way that you can truly understand. Beautiful, beautiful song. Except it was written for Janet. And he originally form- performed it for Janet until he realized, Janet's not a real great name for a song. Sarah's a much better name. She was, there was really a Janet. And it was really a true song about his first love. But he changed to Sarah. Because it works, and I'm so glad he did. There's a recording of him singing Janet, and you're like, Janet? What? Janet's a fine name. It's just 
How many Sarah songs are there? I mean, you can just name it Sarah. Sarah. I mean, Sarah is just a very musical name. So, uh, it, but it's still a true story. And, and it doesn't matter if Vashti's name was Vashti or not. It's still a true story. The real problem is that we put modern expectations onto ancient literary forms. See, when we get a real story, a true story, we think journalism and that it should be written in a journalistic style, facts. But that sort of literary form was unknown in the ancient world. They told their stories as stories. Uh, They used storytelling uh, as the literary form for telling about events. Now, we think of stories and we think Rapunzel, you know, tangled. It's not real. But that's the Bible, that's the primary form of communication of history. And it's the way we live, isn't it? We tell stories all the time. Every day when Katie gets in the car, when I pick her up from school, I say, how was your day? And sometimes I get a recitation. Sometimes when she's not in the mood to talk, which isn't very often. I get, you know, first hour we took notes, second hour we watched a movie. But sometimes I get a story. Oftentimes I get a story. In fifth hour, this kid was so rude to Mr. Reimer, I couldn't even believe it. And she thinks Mr. Reimer walks on water. And I get a whole story about what happened in fifth hour. It doesn't make it any less true because it's a story. And I love stories. Uh, I was so reminded of this as, as I studied Esther. In fact, at camp, my name is. Storyteller Amy, that's what I do. Uh, And so uh, this story of Esther undoubtedly is true. And and you know what? Here's another thing that occurred to me. The Jewish holiday that was created because of the events in Esther is called Purim. Now we'll talk P-U-R-I-M. I should have written it on the board. We'll talk about that more. But here's the thing. It is still celebrated. In fact, this year it will be on March 7th and 8th by Jews around the world. And it has been ever since Mordecai established it in Esther. It would be a hollow celebration indeed if the events of Esther were fabricated. It would be like celebrating Martin Luther King Day without Martin Luther King or the civil rights struggle. Yeah, he never existed, but let's celebrate him today. It's a true story, uh, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that it is not. So let's talk a little bit about the themes of Esther. Here's the main theological point of Esther, that God fulfills his covenant promises to his people through his providence. We'll talk about what that means in a minute, but God fulfills his covenant promises to his people through his providence. Therefore, God's providence is the primary theme of the book of Esther. There are other themes, such as how do our actions interplay with God's providence. So the interplay between God's providence and human action. There's a theme of pride and its self-deceptive and destructive nature. There are lots of banquets and celebrations in Esther, which is fitting then that Purim is a, is a banquet. It's a celebration. It's a feast. Uh, so there are banquets and celebration. And finally, this idea of a sudden turn of events. It looks like this is the way things are going, and then suddenly, boom, it's changed, and it's different. A sudden turn of events. So here's the point of Esther to give away the ending. I had to read the whole book anyway. Um, Here's what the story of Esther is about. 
It is about an event, in this case a decree of death for all Jews everywhere. An event that was supposed to bring about the destruction of God's people. But because of a sudden turn of events, it actually turned out to be the destruction of God's enemies and the enemies of the Jews. That's the point. The Jews were delivered rather than destroyed. Here's what Karen Job says about that. She says, the author is suggesting that beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. Because this story is in the canon of the Jews and subsequently the Christians, it is proper to construe that unseen power as God, even though he's not mentioned. What is the divinely inspired author of Esther trying to say to his readers about God? That's the theology of Esther. And there's several uh, points of theology that are going on, chief of which is this idea of God's providence, which is a theological concept and also the primary theme. Again, Karen Job says that this is how she defines God's providence, the definition of providence, and I think I wrote this out for you, that, that God in some invisible, inscrutable way governs all creatures' actions and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. Now, I'm not, she's not saying, and I would never say, that, that, that God does not work miracles. Of course he does. But he also, and probably primarily, works through his providence. Everyday, normal course of events. Now, do you remember that I told you what the big theological question of the day was for the Jews in Persia? Um, that are we still children of the covenant? Are we still God's people? Well, the Old Testament, Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah and others uh, answer that a resounding yes for the people who returned to Palestine. But what about the people who stayed? Uh, the story of Esther is the answer to that question. That God fulfills his covenantal promises to his people, not through miracles, but through everyday, ordinary events in the story of Esther. And don't miss this point, um, and it won't come for a long time until we study this, but don't miss this point that, that not only did God, through ordinary events, uh, the ordinary events recorded in Esther, say, yes, you are still my people. But those Jews who left and went back were protected by what Esther and Mordecai did, or better, what God did through them. Those who chose to stay, that we would go, hmm, you didn't go back? They were the very vehicle God used to save those who went back because that decree of death applied to them too. Interesting how God works, isn't it? Uh, and so the book of Esther is all about God's providence. And, and that though God may seem hidden, he is not absent. Dr. Ian DeGood puts it this way. He says, as in everyday life, God's intervention is everywhere visible in the book of Esther, even though his presence is concealed. And if you'll indulge me again, I told you I liked Karen Jobes. The book of Esther is the most true-to-life biblical example of God's providence precisely because God seems absent. Even in the most pagan corner of this world, God is ruling all things to the benefit of his people and to the glory of his name. 
Even when his own people, like Esther and Mordecai, make decisions that come from ambiguous motives at best, or perhaps even outright disobedience, God is still providentially working through those very things to fulfill his covenant. I find great comfort in that. Don't you? Uh, And then finally, then, what does this book have to say to us, written thousands of years ago, uh, in whatever B.C., what is its contemporary significance? Now, this is a powerful story. Just those of you who read it this week, and, and Ani already said to me, what a story. Now, she, I'm sure, read it many times. It's a powerful story in its own right. But what does it have to say to us? This story is still treasured and read aloud in synagogues everywhere around the world every year at Purim. It is a powerful story. And, and this people who so many evil rulers have tried to destroy, uh, the Jews obviously find great comfort in knowing that God will never let them be destroyed. And in fact, its contemporary significance for the Jewish uh, community was very eloquently put by the late Rabbi Robert Gordas. He said, anti-Semites have always hated the book of Esther, and the Nazis forbade its reading in the crematoria and the concentration camps. In the dark days before their deaths, Jewish inmates of Auschwitz, Dachau, Treblinka, and Bergen-Belsen wrote the book of Esther from memory and read it in secret on Purim. Both they and their brutal foes understood its message in every age. Martyrs and heroes, as well as ordinary men and women, have seen it not merely as a a record of of past deliverance, but a prophecy of future salvation. Future salvation. The salvation of the Jews in Esther points us to Jesus, whose death delivered us from death and whose resurrected life gives us eternal life. As Karen Jobes puts it much better than I ever could, Jesus Christ took the death that was our destiny, so that we could have the life that was his. It is the greatest turn of events in all of human history. The deliverance from, uh, uh, from uh, earthly death described in Esther points to the greater, in fact, the greatest deliverance from eternal death that is for us through Jesus Christ. A second point, or maybe it's third, I'm not sure where I am, uh, of of contemporary significance for us is this idea of God's hand of providence. Because Esther tells us that God fulfills his covenantal promises to his people by his providence. He still does. He is still working out his providence in our lives, communicating to us his unfolding will for our lives through everyday events. We see it in our faith stories. I wish we had time for everyone to share their faith story. Just in seemingly insignificant events. In my own life, my father chose to retire from the Air Force rather than take us to Turkey. So we moved back here to Bellevue. And I was so excited because we had lived here two years earlier and all my friends were here. Except for in the course of events, Bellevue split its high schools. And I was at Bellevue West. And all my friends were at Bellevue East. And I was lonely. And it was that very loneliness within me for relationship that God used 
to help me see my need for him. Ordinary, everyday events. We see it in the ordinary, everyday events that shape so many courses of our lives. My parents, in 1983, after I had graduated and gone off to teach in Colorado, had had enough of their church and decided to go somewhere else. They were driving down Bellevue Boulevard when my my mother said, I hear there's a new pastor at Avery. Maybe we should try to go there. And my dad said, okay, good. Turn down, just on a whim, turn down Avery Road. And they were there for the rest of their lives. That first Christmas that I came home, I walked in and there was a tall, nice-looking gentleman who was cute and in church and it was a good start. And I turned to my sister and said, who is that? And she said, his name's Jeff Keezer. Ordinary event. That God works his providence into our lives. Um, and, And we can make our plans if we wish. But Proverbs tells us that the Lord orders our steps. So much of this story hits me, hits us right where we live in our everyday lives. Esther couldn't see the happy ending from where she was standing outside that throne room, just like us, but the truth is that it didn't depend on her anyway. Because God's triumph in history ultimately depends not on us, but on Him, and not on our character and our actions, but on God's character and actions. And finally, the contemporary significance, uh, and this really hit home with me as well, is that although God's name is never mentioned in Esther, he is not absent. Nor is he absent in the darkest hours of our own lives. In fact, as Dr. Jobes writes, The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. I love the point she also makes that the last words of Jesus in Matthew 28 were go and make disciples of all nations and surely I will be with you even to the end of the age and then ironically he left and he ascended to heaven and yet he did not leave. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And no power of hell or scheme of man can keep him, can thwart him from bringing us safely back to himself. This is the truth we will see over and over again in Esther. And I hope you're as excited to start as I am. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this book of Esther that has just become my, my heart um, and, and beats so closely to my own. I pray, Father, that you would communicate uh, your word to us this semester. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Amy? Yes. Okay, I will... Email them to your leaders and have them email them to you. Okay? Yeah, isn't she good? Yeah.